Hello, Senior Pastor. Good to be with you again today. Good to be with you, Pastor O. Thank the Lord. Amen. Uh, we're going to be looking at um, the letters of Paul to understand that Paul played an integral part in the life of the early church. Um, and we're going to be looking at a few scriptures. Um, we're going to divide it into three sections, as we always do. The first section is being made right with God, Romans chapter 1, verses 17 through 23. Uh, chapter 3, verses 20 through uh, 24. Uh, Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Um, and verse 6 through 8, and then Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 2. Uh, the second section, um, we're going to be looking at the apostolic correction and counsel, apostolic correction and counsel. And we're going to be looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 1 through 11, and Galatians chapter 3, verses 1 through 14. These are supporting scriptures. Um, then finally, we're going to look at the section concerning pastoral care um, and instruction. And supporting scriptures there are 1 Timothy 6, verses 3 through 12, uh, 2 Timothy 3, verses 1 through 5, 2 Timothy 2, verses 1 through 7, and then Titus chapter 3 verses 1 through 8. Um, we all know that Jesus Christ is the head of the church. And as we go through these various scriptures, we're going to analyze and apply God's instruction through Paul to the church. Colossians 1 verse 18 says, He, meaning Jesus, is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. Through the enabling power of the Holy Spirit given at Pentecost, and we talk about that often um, found in Acts chapter 2, the church began growing at a rapid pace, especially through the missionary journeys of Paul. And we, we have talked about how you know, the Christians, they were fleeing persecution. And by fleeing persecution, they actually started spreading the gospel. They were going into places that they possibly would not have normally gone. And they were just telling people about the good news, about Jesus, about who he is and what he did on the cross and so forth and so on. So, um, you know, the church began to grow rapidly, um, especially through the missionary journeys of Paul, Barnabas, and Silas. As seekers found Christ through the ministry of the apostles and early believers, local fellowships were established in homes and sometimes in public meetings. Yeah. Um, in, sorry, in public meeting places. The need for teaching these new believers the tenets of the faith, uh, divine order in the body of Christ, and appropriate church government quickly became apparent. So this was kind of a way of, of you know, even though Paul and, and the apostles, they were going out and they were preaching and they were teaching, they fastly, we started, they started recognizing that the church needed to mobilize. There needed to be 
a set of rules, um, a, just a guideline, how to, you know, how to function, how church government should operate, uh, that type of thing. Uh, this expansion also brought into focus a new problem. The question arose that if Gentiles receive Jesus as Messiah and Savior, to what degree should they be required to observe the law of Moses, especially the right of circumcision? With the Gentiles entering into Christian fellowship solely by faith, and with Jewish believers still clinging to Old Testament precepts, the conflict within the church became an extremely serious issue, hence the growing need for concentrated instruction and training. So not only were they looking at church governance and so forth, they were looking at a set of principles that could guide the church regarding, you know, because again, it's not only for the Jews, but it's also for the Gentiles. So you had con converting Jews um, that converted to Christianity, and then you had Gentiles that also converted to Christianity. Um, they were saved by grace through faith. So this now posed a problem. How do we have a set of principles that guide um, literally both uh, types of people um, so that, we can, so that the, the furtherance of the ministry could continue? Now, Paul's letters constitute more than a fourth of the New Testament, and his instructions to believers are as relevant today as they were then. Meryl C. Kenny said, next to the work of Christ himself, the conversion of Saul was probably the most important event in the history of Christianity, for it not only removed an active enemy of the gospel, but also transformed him into one of its chief propagators. Now, that's a powerful statement because we all know that Saul later, of course, converted, changed, his name was changed to Paul. But he was one of the primary persecutors of the Christians. So this was significant. God changed him, converted him through the power of the Holy Spirit, and now he was one of, if not the greatest apostle um, that ever lived. Uh, so this was quite significant. Uh, God used him in such a way to reach out to the Gentile community, and this was significant, and that's why now we have access uh, to the gospel as well. Um, so as we move uh, forward, we're going to see Paul's contribution um, to the kingdom, to the church, and, oh boy, it's quite significant. So at this time, I'm going to turn it over to you, Sina Pastor, uh, being made right with God, being made right with God, God's righteousness and our unrighteousness. Amen. Being made right with God. I, I would like for us to pay attention to this aspect and all aspects of the lesson. This is such a profound lesson. Um, I'm pretty sure if we're right with God, we will be right with each other. And... Um, I need to point out that these letters were written with you and me in mind and the churches. didn't just get up and write a letter for writing's sake or something to be published. 
but he wrote the letter to grab their attention. That, you know, we're coming out of sin, but there is a way to God. And when the blood of Jesus changes us, we need to be right with God. And we're looking at God's righteousness and our unrighteousness. Let me say that again. God's God's righteousness and our unrighteousness. Because he is righteous. We are unrighteous. So we are, he's trying to, Paul here, he's trying to bring us up to the standard that our unrighteousness can be made righteous in God. For all our righteousness is like filter rags in the sight of God. Romans 1, verse 17, 18 says, For there is the righteousness of God Reveal from faith to faith. Let me say that again. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness, who hold the truth in unrighteousness. Now, this epistle to the Romans and to us focuses mainly on two themes. Number one, man's sin and God's righteousness. Man's sin and God's righteousness. It is the revelation of God's righteousness to us and its application to our spiritual needs. So God reveals it to us. God and down his righteousness and we must apply it to our spiritual walk and our spiritual needs. Now what do we find throughout this epistle? Paul explains how God reveals and imparts his nature to us through faith, thereby recreating us in his righteousness. Righteousness in the biblical sense has to do with simple being right in relationship to the ideal standard that is to God. In other words, being right with God. God judicial declaration of our righteousness grounded in his perfection and in our faith as a direct bearing on our relationship with him and manifests itself in behavior that conforms to his image and that is very important behavior that conforms to his image So when we are not behaving right, we are behaving like the devil. We are conforming to the image of the devil. Because if we are going to be right with God, if we're going to have a right relationship with God, then our behavior, how many times have we behaved unseemingly? How many times have we behaved that cause the gospel to be blamed? We need to get our behavior right in the sight of 
God and the blood of Jesus has cleansed us and has transformed us through sanctification that we can conform to the image of God. Holiness in position produces holiness in nature and practice. Now, what do we find? We find that the gospel is a revelation of God's righteousness from faith to faith, from faith to faith, regardless of what you do, regardless of what faith you belong to. The gospel, if you're preaching the gospel, is a revelation of God's righteousness. You can't say, because I'm Catholic or because I'm this or because I'm that. No, it still helps us to be right with God. Now, it is a promise. It is an act of judgment. It is God declaring that through Christ's atonement, and here comes that word that we use at Easter, through Christ's atonement is death, his burial, his resurrection. Amen. To God's atonement, he is prepared to pronounce us righteous and accept us as if we have never sinned. When we are washed by the blood of Jesus, when we are cleansed, when we are justified in Christ, oh yes, my friend, he is prepared to pronounce us as righteous beings. Although we were uh, born in sin and shaping iniquity and incended our mother conceivers. When we are cleansed, when we accept Jesus and we are cleansed and we are justified by him, sin stains are removed. My friend, he is prepared to pr- pronounce us righteous. That's why your name is changed. That's why you're called brother so and so. That's why you're called sister so and so. We are buried with him in baptism. And when you, when, you, when you go down, they put you underneath the water and signifying his resurrection, you come out of the water. They lift you out of the water. So we are buried with him in baptism, resurrected in Christ Jesus. The cross became the means whereby the justice of God could be satisfied and the mercy of God could be realized. Through him taking our sins, nailing them to the cross. And he was resurrected, glorified for our salvation. Now, there's also another revelation in verse 18. This one is also grounded on justice, justification, justice. But it has to do with God's wrath. And I think we have touched on this already in some past lessons. Here, wrath comes from the Greek word org, O-R-G-E. And it's defined by one's color as a wrath of God who would not love good unless he hated evil. The two being inseparable. All right? He loves, loves good, but he hates evil. And he loves us, but he hates the sin that we do. He loves the sinner, but the sinner must repent. We must not do both or neither, or we must do both or neither. This wrath does not speak of the punishment of sin. And I said we touched on this already, but rather of God's 
attitude toward it, God's attitude toward sin. And we know that if we sin, we have an advocate with the Father, and if we continue to sin, it brings forth death and punishment. His posture is against the ungodliness of people who suppress the truth in their unrighteousness. Some people, even in their unrighteousness, they think that they are right. And you can't tell them anything. You can't preach to them. You can't show them where they have gone wrong. They will not listen. They try to suppress it. They try to bring you a scripture. They try to tell you that they are right. But oh no, my friend, through God's word, we can know which path we are on. They know the truth because God has shown it to them. But in their unrighteousness, they try to suppress it. Further proof that these unrighteous people were not ignorant of God is found in verse 21. And the Bible declares in Matthew that God used to laugh at their calamity, but now he commands men everywhere to repent. Yes, people were ignorant of God, In verse 21, for when they knew God, they did not glorify him nor thank him. Their hearts became darkened, and in their foolishness, they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. And we find a whole lot of this that used to happen in the Old Testament, especially, and it's still going on in certain places that people try to change the image of God and they worship birds and animals and creeping things. But God is a spirit, my friend. And he said, thou, thou shall have no other God beside me. In practice, what they were doing, they became idolatrous. They were idol worshippers, worshiping things created instead of directing worship to the eternal God and creator of all things. Him alone must be worshipped. He alone deserves our worship. Make sure you don't worship anything. Don't worship your house. Don't worship your car. Don't worship your children. Don't worship your mother. Don't worship your father. Make sure that we, our worship is directed towards God. <clears throat> Amen. Amen. Our worship. We are created to worship God. We are created to praise God. We are created to glorify God, not birds and trees and anything else. He alone deserves the glory and the praise. I hope that we will move towards that. There's a time now that we must seek to be right with God in a world that is staggering like a drunken man. All of God's children must do our utmost best to be right with God. And we, we, we are going on to another aspect of the lesson here, verse 21 of, this, of Romans 3. Um, but now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested, being witnesses by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ, and to all and upon all them that believe, for there is no difference. Why? Verse 23 says, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And I, I remarked earlier that we were born in sin, shaping iniquity. And because we were sinners, we have all sinned 
nobody was born righteous. We came here as sinners, but um, we, and have come short of the glory of God. Didn't deserve him at all, but God made the way through his son Jesus' death on the cross. Paul's initial object in his lesson to the Romans was to expose Jews and Gentiles alike as helpless, falling under God's judgment. Jews were not righteous. They needed a Savior. Gentiles are not righteous. We needed a Savior. We have all fallen short of God's grace. And um, we will fall under God's judgment. As it is written, there is none righteous. No, not one. Therefore, the guilt of sin is universal. All over the world, the guilt of sin. No, no, no nation can say that there is no sin. No nation, no person can say you are righteous unless you are born again. Therefore, the guilt of sin is universal. The human race is depraved, having no fear of God and having no knowledge of peace with the law, being incapable of providing justification. And remember, the law could not make us perfect in that it was weak. But God sent his only begotten son in the likeness of sinful flesh to condemn sin in the flesh. The phrase without the law is placed forward in the Greek text to read, but now apart from the law. In arranging this phrase accordingly, Paul immediately set forth the separation of divine righteousness from any works of the law. Therefore, righteousness is based on a principle other than our doing right. For good works, and listen here, friends, good works can never make us righteous. Can I say that again? Good works can never make us righteous. And, and we found that with the rich young ruler who went to him and Jesus said, go sell all you have. No, he says, Jesus said, you must be born again. Or he said, what must I do to go to heaven? Putting it in my own words. And the Lord said, you know what the law says? And he said, I've kept all of those from my mother's womb. And Jesus said to him, one thing thou lackest, go sell all thou hast and give to the poor. We have no issue whether he had repented of his sin, but no Good works can make us righteous. Righteousness comes through accepting God as our Lord and Savior and behaving right and doing right and allowing the Lord to direct us and keeping our focus on what God wants us to do. Righteousness is based on a principle other than our doing right. Regardless of this incomplete knowledge, the law and the prophets bear witness. They anticipated and spoke of this great truth of justification by faith. While God's righteousness has been made available through Christ, we can access this treasure only through faith in Jesus Christ. And we have talked about faith that is the substance of things, hope for the evidence of things not, see, not seen. We don't see God, but we have faith in him that he can save us. We weren't there when he was crucified. We weren't there when he was buried. We weren't there when he was resurrected. But through faith, we accept it. Although all have sinned 
and have fallen woefully short of God's glory. All now have access. All now have access. Jew and Gentile. There is no difference. God invites all to be justified. Know what you're doing. Know that what you accept is the right thing. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Have you been justified? Have you been justified? Have you been satisfied? Do you accept? Do you have the assurance that you have salvation and that Jesus Christ is your Lord? Be be justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And justification brought about peace. Peace through justification. Romans 5. Verses 1 and verse 6 to 8. And verse 1 says, Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Justification through faith brings peace. Some people are so rude. Some people, I mean, they behave so badly. But we must let the peace of God through being justified through faith in Jesus Christ, peace. There must be a peace, a deep settled peace in our hearts. But God commended, verse 8, commended his love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Thank the Lord. When a person accepts Christ as Savior, a remarkable change takes place in that person's state of being. Being justified by faith, that person, you and I now have the peace with God. Before, so it wasn't that. We were warlike. We were contentious. But now we have Christ. And there's a deep sense of peace in our heart. We don't, we don't fuss with anybody. We don't quarrel with anybody. When we are accused, we don't fight back. Oh, the peace of God keeps us. When, when, when people say things against us, peace. Peace must be in our heart. It is impossible for a holy and righteous God to be at peace with a sinner who continues to live under the guilt of sin. The barrier of sin prevents a meaningful relationship between the Creator and the one created. But justification, and let me point that out again, justification God's declaration that the individual is free from sin removes the guilt by breaking down the wall of separation and opens the door for peace. When we were still in sin and without strength to liberate ourselves, Christ died for us, died for us who were ungodly. Paul said, it is rare for someone to die and be off of a good person. But God manifested his love to vile sinners by giving his son to die a sacrificial death. Amen. He died upon the cross. He sacrificed himself. He sacrificed his life for you and I. As believers, we are now, we all now live. As believers, we all now live in a state of grace. And grace is what brings about salvation. 
by the grace of God, we are saved. Unmerited favor from God. We didn't deserve it, but through his sacrificial death and through the grace of God, we have an entitlement, oh God, because God has led us into it. He has freely pardoned our offenses. He pardoned my transgression. Free, free, free. Thank God I'm free. Free at last. Free from sin. Free in Jesus Christ. There is therefore now no condemnation to them who are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. Andrew McLaren said, you must come to the full-tone belief, which, as I think, permeates and binds together every page of the New Testament. God so loved the world and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sin. Because of this, there is no condemnation. The, the, the slate has been wiped clean. Your record of sinfulness has been cast into the sea of forgetfulness, and you have no more condemnation. Romans 8, verse 1 to 4. Verse 1 says, Paul said, There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. These verses show how the law of sin and death is robbed of its power to bring believers again into bondage. On one hand, the law weakened by the sinful nature could only reveal sin but had no power to deal with it because it was just a schoolmaster to lead us to Christ. On the other hand, met the demands of the law becoming a sin offering. Jesus met the demands of the law becoming a sin offering for us that we can now live free from the law of sin and death. He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Praise the Lord. What a privilege. What an opportunity. And what do we mean? We mean that being in Christ Jesus assumes a walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. So the predicate for no condemnation is to be in Christ. And to be in him means to walk in the spirit. And that's what we are told. Walk in the spirit so that we shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Thank God the cloud of condemnation no longer hangs over our head. And the fear of death, both physical and spiritual, is gone because we have the righteousness of God. Oh, thanks be to God. Can I tell you, Petty Paul E. Little says, we are justified by faith. This truth burst upon the heart and mind of Martin Luther like a bombshell as he considered the words. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. After long struggling, his unsuccessful self-effort to win the favor of God, Luther, who struggled, suddenly realized that it was not he who could do it, but what God has done that made justification and peace possible. The Protestant Reformation resulted from this discovery. Thank God for his 
revelation. Thank God. We have no more condemnation hanging over us. Don't let people hang that over you. Tell them you are free in Christ Jesus. And Paul here in his writing and in his letter had to give correction and counsel. And he talks about the carnal Christian. Take it away, Pastor O. Praise the Lord. Amen. Thanks, Senior Pastor. And uh, yes, Paul had to give some correction and counsel um, to what we call carnal Christians. And it's kind of a, a, a strange term, carnal Christians. But what does carnal mean? Um, it simply means of the flesh or fleshly, something material. And here, um, we find in 1 Corinthians 3, we're going to read verses 3 and 4. The full context is 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 1 through 7. But we're just going to extrapolate um, verse 3 and 4 very quickly. For ye are yet carnal, meaning fleshly. For whereas there is among you envying and strife and divisions, are ye not carnal and walk as men? For while one says, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos, are ye not carnal? So here Paul faced a formidable challenge in Corinth. Mm-hmm. In other writings, we find that he compares believers with unbelievers, the obedient with the disobedient, and light with darkness. But in this particular letter, Paul's comparison is between different classes of Christians having to do with the level of spiritual maturity. And oh, do we need spiritual maturity in the church today. This imma- these immature believers or carnal Christians, as the term has been coined, were weak in spiritual principles and exercises. And remember we were talking about that earlier where we talked about there was this need for everybody to somewhat be on the same page, to have a set of guidelines and principles and what we call tenets of the faith. So here we found that these Christians uh, in Corinth were weak in spiritual principles and exercises. Therefore, Paul wrote that he spoke to them as babes in Christ and fed them with milk and not with meat. The world was still much too attractive to them. Therefore, they allowed Satan to hinder their progress. Even though they loved Christ, their love was not deep enough to lead them as close to him as they needed to be. These carnal Christians did not create a spiritual hunger in others Mm -hmm. because their own lives offered no real tribute to Christianity, but rather made it dubious in the eyes of the world. Now, the proof of their carnality lay couched in their feelings of jealousy, their words of strife, and their actions which produced divisions. And we see that in the church today, right? There are levels of, of, of division when people speak things, how they act, what they do, right? Their actions produce divisions. They reveled, the, 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 the carnal Christians reveled in being baptized by certain prominent ministers of Christ. Wow. That's mm. a whole nother message. 
prompted Amen. Paul to declare that he was glad he had only baptized Crispus, Gaius, and the household of Stephanus. He emphasized that he and Apollos were simply ministers by whom the Corinthians believed. They were just simply ministers. We are not Christ. We are not God. We are ministers. Although he had planted and Apollos had watered, God had given the increase. So then the one who plants and the one who waters are nothing in themselves. To think and act otherwise is carnal. And we see that, um, that trend with certain ministers. You know, you have ministers that dress a certain way. You have ministers that speak a certain way or act a certain way because they believe, uh, you know, they believe in, in maybe showing off what they have and what they can do, their, their, their skills and their abilities, the way they speak, their, their oratory accomplishments, so to speak. You know, but here it's telling us to think and act as if we are doing everything is carnal. It is God, right? It says it here. It is God that gives the increase. Amen. So ministers have to take what we call a, um, um, a humble pill. You know, we need to be humble before God so that God can use us in the right way. So this is very instructive. Um, Paul was offering um, correction here and counsel, saying that you can't think highly of yourselves. If, if you're called to minister, if you're called to do the work of God, you can't think highly of yourselves. Do what you are supposed to do and allow God to do the rest. Um, in 1 Corinthians 3, verse 8 through 11, I'm going to read verse 9. It says, For we are laborers together with God. Ye are God's husbandry. Ye are God's building. And this is this section is labeled unity in service. We ought to be united instead of being jealous and divisive. You know, Paul emphasized to the Corinthians that they were to be fellow laborers, regardless of where you come from, regardless of who you are, right? We ought to be together fellow laborers. That is, they were members of the same body and were responsible to work together in a spirit of harmony and cooperation. Not only were they workers with each other, they were laborers together with God. One day, each person would receive his own reward according to his own labor. But we ought to work together for the good of the kingdom. Paul continued making his case for unity in the body of Christ by announcing he had become a wise master builder by the grace of God. And we find that in 1 Corinthians 3, verse 10. Through this grace, Paul had laid the foundation on which others had begun to build, issuing the warning that all must be careful how they build. He clarified that the foundation is Jesus Christ, and no other foundation will endure. Isn't that the truth? Yeah. Our foundation must be Jesus Christ. No other foundation will endure. 
Now, the, the, the third segment here, Galatians 3, verses 1 through 14, um, I'm going to read verses 1 and 2. It says, O foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you, that ye should not obey the truth before those eyes Jesus Christ hath been evidently set forth, crucified among you? This only would I learn of you, Receive ye the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith. Hearing of faith. What caused Paul to call the Galatians foolish? What caused Paul to call the Galatians foolish? Having received the truth of salvation by grace in the beginning, they now were claiming that circumcision and other works of the law were necessary for justification. This was a situation that arose between the converted Jews and the converted Gentiles. The apostle was deeply disturbed that these Galatians who knew about Christ's sacrifice and had received the Spirit now wanted to turn to the ceremonial law. The idea of adding good works to the sacrifice of Jesus Christ to obtain salvation was an offense to his finished work on Calvary. Now, in, in verse 2, Paul's question was not about whether the Galatians had received the Spirit, but about whether they received him by the law or by faith. He wondered how after beginning in the spirit, they now expected to finish in the flesh. It's not possible. In verse 5, he reiterated the question of how God's spirit, salvation, and miracles had come by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith. Again, I'm, I'm going through Galatians 3 verses 1 through 14. Paul's reference to Abraham in verse 6 was brilliant. The Jew the Judaizers, or the, Judaic, the Judaizers, who were misleading the Galatians, no, the Judaizers, who were misleading the Galatian Christians, viewed Moses as their teacher and Abraham as their father. For Paul to connect faith with faithful Abraham was an act of divine inspiration. Remember, God promised Abraham and Sarah a son in their old age, a promise that both believed God would fulfill, and this was the faith God counted as righteousness. The Judaizers' actions were communicating to Gentile converts that the only way they could become the children of Abraham was through circumcision. But Paul's rebuttal was that they were already children of Abraham, not by circumcision, but by faith. The curse of the law, Paul wrote, was the inability of anyone to perfectly keep all the commandments and therefore brought condemnation and death. However, in verse 11, the blessing of God is that the just shall live by faith. Amen. Death and condemnation 
came through the law. Justification and life came through Jesus Christ. Through his death, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law being made a curse for us so that the blessings of Abraham might come upon Jew and Gentile alike. Consequently, we receive the promise of the Spirit by faith. Now, I know that's pretty confusing maybe to many that um, are listening, but basically we are justified by faith. We are justified by faith. We are made right. We are made just by our faith in God. That's as simply, simple as we can explain it. We are made right through our faith in God. We cannot uh, buy it. We cannot work for it. It is simply through our, the confession of our faith that Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins. And we believe it and we confess it and we know that he, you know, that he rose on the third day and that he's coming back again. That's the confession of our faith. And because of that confession, we are now made just, made right Amen. with God. Now, of course, we have to change attitudes, behaviors, and so forth, so on. We are constantly working on that. We are a working progress. But as long as we continue to believe in God and practice his principles and his teachings as given through Jesus Christ and the Bible, then we will make it. We will definitely make it. Now, let's look at the law versus the gospel. And then we're going to turn it over to Senior Pastor for the, the, the last segment. The law says, do this. The gospel says, Christ has done it all. The law requires works of human achievement. The gospel requires faith in Christ's achievement. The law makes demands and bids us to obey. The gospel brings promises and bids us to believe. Amen. So the law Amen. demands this. But the gospel brings the promise and bids us to believe. That is wonderful. Christ has done it all. Christ all. has Amen. done it all. Which leads us to the significance of the resurrection, Senior Pastor. And I'll do A and B, Pastor O, and then we'll ask you to do C and close it out. But sure. um, the significance of the resurrection. And Pastor O, we know that. Christ was crucified, Christ was buried, Christ was resurrected. We know that because he was seen, Mary Magdalene saw him, and the other Mary, and she ran to tell them. After she went down to the sepulchre and it was empty, she saw him and he said, Touch me not, for I am not yet ascended to my father. We know this to be true because the men on the way to Emmaus, after they were returning, they encountered Jesus. We know this because he appeared to the disciples who were shut behind doors. We know this because he was seen by Cephas and many others, 120 also, saw him. So we know that. But what was happening here is that Paul had to continue instructions to let them know 
that everything would become to naught, futility, without resurrection. The gospel had nothing and would be worthless and baseless. Our preaching would be naught without the resurrection. And what we find in this chapter here, 1 Corinthians 15, 12 to 19, that there were some in Corinth, people like the Sadducees, who did not accept, who did not believe in the resurrection. So Paul had to bring their attention, had to preach to them, had to remind them that now if Christ be preached that he rose from the dead, how come, how come say some of you, that there is no resurrection of the dead. But if there be no resurrection of the dead, then is Christ not risen? So to counteract this unbelief, Paul delivered a stirring message on the resurrection to prove that it is so. In effect, he maintained that the entire superstructure of Christianity, our Christian faith, the church, rested firmly upon the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because if it is not so, we might as well draw down the shutter. We might as well shut down church and don't bother to preach. Otherwise, the professed church would be putting faith in a dead man and not in the risen Lord. But thank God he was resurrected. Um, verse 14 of First Corinthians 15, Paul says, if Christ be not risen, then is our preaching vain, and your faith is also vain. So if you don't believe it, stop preaching it. If you don't believe it, then your faith don't hold nothing at all. It's just a, a basket without water. And then he went on in verse 19 to say, if only in this life we have hope in Christ, we are all men most miserable. In other words, he said, if Jesus did not rise from the dead, our testimony, our faith, and our preaching are to no avail, and we are nothing more than deceitful bystanders. Oh, my Lord. Not only that, we are still in our sins, and the ones who have passed away are eternally lost. If this be the case, faith in Christ's deity is meaningless. Faith in Christ as our Savior is worthless. Faith in Christ as the promise of our resurrection is of no value. In essence, Christianity is an exercise in futility. Thus, without hope, we would be completely despondent. But if only in this life we have hope, we would be men most miserable. But thanks be to God who has given us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And here is the truth. Here is the assurance of the resurrection. But now, verse 20, but now is Christ risen from the dead and become the first fruit of them that slept. Can I repeat? But now is Christ risen from the dead and become the first fruit of them that slept. And we know that as well too because when he organized his church and he was going back to his father, he was taken up by a cloud and they stood there and they watched him as he was taken up. And the angel said unto them, Ye men of Galilee, 
why stand ye gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, this same Christ, which is taken away from you, shall so come in like manner as ye have seen him go into heaven. Oh, with the words, but now Paul transitioned from discussing the bleak thought of Christ's perpetual entombment and announcing that Christ has actually burst forth from the grave as the first fruit of the resurrection, a pledge that the entire resurrection harvest will follow. Oh, yes, just as death came into the world through the first Adam, life came to the second Adam, Jesus Christ. The first Adam was made a living soul. The last Adam was made a quickening spirit. Oh, praise God. Following the predetermined order of resurrection addressed in verse 23, the end will come and Christ will deliver the kingdom to God, the Father, having conquered all earthly power and authority and having destroyed death as the last enemy. Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, grave, where is your victory? Hallelujah to God. Hallelujah to God. Praise God. He is resurrected, and we shall also resurrect one day. Oh, we'll be caught up to, to meet him in the clouds of heaven. Oh, the dead saints, and then those of, of us who are alive and remain in Christ and stay in the church and uh, love the Lord, we will be caught up in the clouds of heaven, and together we will meet the Lord in the clouds of heaven. Praise the Lord for this wonderful, wonderful resurrection story. Okay, Pastor Oak, it feels so good. Change through the resurrection. Change through the resurrection. Tell us about it, my brother. And the, the, the resurrection, as you talked about, Senior Pastor, is going to bring about a change. Uh, a change is coming. A change through the resurrection. And in 1 Corinthians 15, and, uh, verse 50 through 58, we're going to read a few verses. Verse 51 says, Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. Paul now steps forth with a deeper revelation. The word mystery does not refer to what cannot be known, but rather what has not yet become known. It comes from the Greek mysteria and denotes that which can only be known by divine revelation. Although Paul had discussed this theme in an earlier letter to the Thessalonians, found in 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 13 to 17, he now explained more fully what will happen to believers at the coming of our Lord, and that is not everyone will sleep as in death, but all who are in Christ will be changed. And that change will occur in the twinkling of an eye. The change from mortality to immortality 
and from corruption to incorruption will happen that quickly, faster than the speed of light. We shall be changed. And nobody knows exactly how it's going to happen. We have some ideas. We've seen movies upon movies. We've read books you know, kind of hinting at to possibly how it's going to happen. But all we know is that it's going to be faster than the speed of light. We shall be changed. Seeing that, we must put on the immortality of Jesus Christ. This change is necessary. We can't go in there with old clothes. We can't go in there with an old body. Something is going to happen. A change is going to happen. A change is coming. Death will be swallowed up in victory. Through the resurrection of Jesus, the sting of death is gone. The victory of the grave has disappeared. It is upon this resurrection promise that we remain steadfast and unmovable and continue faithfully in the Lord. Amen. Standing firm, letting nothing move us always giving ourselves fully to the work of the Lord because we know that our labor is not in vain. First uh, Corinthians 15, verse 58. Now, Augustine said, people are amazed that God, who made all things from nothing, makes a heavenly body from human flesh. Is he, this is a question he asked, is he who was able to make you when you did not exist, not able to make over what you once were? Oh, I'm looking for that makeover. We talk about, you know, the, the, the makeovers, how we dress and how we look, you know, the earthly makeover. I'm looking for a heavenly makeover, and that heavenly makeover is coming. That change is coming. All we must do is be faithful. And that is our hope. Blessed assurance. Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. I'm an heir of salvation, purchased of God, born of his spirit, washed in his blood. And the, the, the verse, the, the chorus says, this is my story. This is my song, praising my savior all the day long. This is my story. This is my song, praising my Savior all the day long. So this is our blessed assurance that there is a change coming. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. And this hope embraced by an ever-expanding church is the promise of Christ coming again, the assurance of the resurrection and the anticipation of spending Eternity in an indescribable place we call heaven. The road is sometimes arduous. Uh, The song says the the road is rough and the going is tough and the, the hills are hard to climb. But I've decided to make Jesus my choice. The battles are many and the trials are intense. To navigate these troubled waters, we need the strength of God's word. And I think that's what we need to embrace again, God's word, God's good counsel. And at times, we need correction. 
And there are many of us that have gone through this phase of life where God corrects us because we did not listen to his bidding. We did not listen to his instructions. And there are times when God is going to correct us. But at journey's end, we have the assurance that our God and Savior, and this is the beauty of it, he will escort us from this world of sin and suffering and tears and shame and despondency and discouragement and from this body of death to a perfect world of life, joy, and peace. Oh, I want to see him to look upon his face. Oh, my goodness. I am looking for that perfect world of life, joy, and peace. Senior Pastor, if you can, just close us out in prayer. Uh, For those who don't have that blessed assurance, we pray for them today. Praise God. Lord, we thank you for this beautiful message today, this teaching. And we thank you for blessing us so that we could impart it to the ears. We pray, God, that right now your Holy Spirit will talk to everybody, will touch everybody, will speak to everybody today, that they know that we need to have a right relationship with you. For all our righteousness are just filthy rags. But, oh, God, thank thee that we can give thee the old tattered garment. And you will give us a robe of pure white. Thank you today for the assurance we have. Many are our trials. Oh, God, our situation sometimes cause us to question. But, oh, God, I hear somebody said that, oh, if only in Christ we have hope. If only in this life we have hope, we would be men most miserable. But in Christ... We have a hope that is beyond the grave. We thank thee today for the hope, the hope of eternal life. Thank thee for dying on the cross. Thank you for shedding your blood. Thank you for your burial. Thank you for your resurrection. Because you came out of the grave, we have hope that we will see your face one day. We will be caught up to meet in the clouds of heaven. And we pray for those who don't have the hope this morning. We pray for those who are not yet saved, those who have not yet accepted you as Lord and Savior. Help us to be reminded that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life to Jesus Christ, our Lord. But, oh God, Paul said, there is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. Thank thee, Lord. Thank thee. Thank thee for saving us. Oh, though wretched we were, but you reached down your hands and you pluck us from the mire. You pluck us, so oh God, from destruction. You, you put our feet on a solid ground. And we praise you this morning. We praise you this morning that you're coming back to receive us unto yourself. That where you are, 
we may be also. We glorify your name. We honor you this morning. Thank you for what we feel. Thank you for your spirit. Thank you, Lord, for directing us. Thank you for your church, that we can be a part of your church. We pray for those who have been stubborn in Christendom, those who will not listen. Oh, God, those who continue to foster unrighteousness, and they will not listen to wise counsel. Oh, we call them out today. We call them out today to the Spirit of Christ, that they will turn around, that they will plant their feet on solid ground. Bless us, Lord, and those of us who minister the word, who have to carry the gospel Sometimes we become laughing stocks. Sometimes people mock us and jeer us. But help us, Lord, that we will be steadfast and unmovable, always abounding in the works of the Lord, for as much as we know that our labor is not in vain in the Lord. And we look forward that when this life on earth is ended, that we shall see your face. Face to face, I shall behold him. Oh, God, we bless your name this morning, and we praise thee forever and ever. Amen and amen.